Section five of the Early Hanoverians by Edward Ellis Morris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Book one, chapter five, the fifteen. There can be little doubt that the confirmed Jacobites were ready at any time after the death of Queen Anne to make an attempt to restore the Stuarts. What may be doubted is whether their numbers were sufficient to justify such an attempt by giving it any chance of success. During the first year of the new king's reign, his decided and manifest inclination toward the Whig party and the vindictive treatment of the Tory leaders had, by swelling the ranks of the discontented, given the attempt a much better, and indeed its only chance. From the date of the revolution, known from its bloodless character as the Glorious Revolution, to the time when the hopes of the Jacobites were crushed in the defeat of Culloden, and by the cruel punishment which followed it, a period of fifty-eight years, constant, were the efforts made to restore the exiled family. Such efforts may be classed under two heads. For the first twenty-five years of this period, England was for the most part at war with France, and the hope of the Jacobites lay in the defeat of their country. At the beginning of the First War, which lacks a recognized name, but may be known as the War of the First Grand Alliance, Ireland held out vigorously for James II until the Battle of the Boyne and the pacification of Limerick destroyed his power there. The Highlands of Scotland held out under the heroic Dundee until the victory of Killiecrankie proved, through his death, worse than a defeat. The remainder of that war was a sort of drawn combat. Though William often lost battles, his antagonists gained little by their victories. In the Second War, the War of the Spanish Succession, which Louis's recognition of James's son as King of England contributed no little to bring about, the military genius and splendid successes of Marlborough gave no hope for final victory to France, or restoration by the French of the Stuart dynasty. When the Treaty of Utrecht closed that war, James, the old pretender, had to retire from France and take refuge in Lorraine. Baffled in the hope of help from abroad, more attention was given to rebellion at home. Once in Queen Anne's reign, when the unpopularity of the Union still made the Scotchman sore, an attempt was made which failed, first because when his adherents were ready, the pretender, then nearly twenty, had the measles. When he recovered from the measles and came to Scotland, the adherents on shore were not ready. But after all, Anne was a Stuart, half-sister of the pretender, whilst her successor, though great-grandson of a Stuart king, can hardly be called a Stuart. Stronger attempts, therefore, might fairly be expected. In this volume, accounts of two will be found, neither of them despicable, either of which, with a little more effort, a little more well-directed energy, might have succeeded. They are called after their dates, the fifteen and the forty-five. The fifteen was the rising of the old pretender, James Francis Edward, against George I. The forty-five was the rising of his son, Charles Edward, the young pretender, against George II. It will be shown that the latter was the more formidable of the two. 
Bolingbroke, after his flight from England, had been made chief adviser of him whom his friends called James III, his enemies, the Pretender, and those who were neither, called by the neutral name of the Chevalier de Saint-Georges. Bolingbroke knew a good deal about the discontent in England, and believed that with a French force of moderate strength as a nucleus, a rising might be made simultaneously in Scotland and in several parts of England. By representations made to King Louis the Fourteenth, he very nearly succeeded in bringing about a war between France and England. Bolingbroke himself afterwards declared that had Louis lived, such a war would have broken out within six months. But Louis's life was an insecure foundation upon which to build, and his death destroyed any hopes of assistance from France. The regent, his successor, was determined to be friendly with England. In the United Kingdom, the head of the Jacobite party was John Earl of Mar, a nobleman whose nickname, Bobbing John, tells us his character. He had changed his side several times, and if he could have obtained office from King George, would have remained, apparently at least, a loyal subject. But King George received the Earl with insult, and even turned his back upon him as he offered homage on the occasion of the King's landing. Mar, though once a Whig, had been manager for Scotland as Secretary of State in the time of Tory sway at the end of the late reign. Sore at the deprivation of office, he joined the Jacobites, by whom he was thought to have great weight in Scotland. But though a cunning politician and skilled in intrigue, he was too selfish as well as too unskillful in matters of war to be the leader of a successful rebellion. One day he attended a levy held by King George. Next day he left London in disguise on board a collier bound for the north. Having reached his home in Aberdeenshire, he issued invitations to a great hunt. After a stirring speech from their inviter, those who were assembled took an oath of allegiance to Mar as general for King James. A few days later, on September 6th, the standard was raised for the Chevalier, it was noticed as an evil omen that the gilt ball fell down from the top of the pole. The insurrection soon spread, almost all the Highlanders being for the descendant of their ancient kings. A great success nearly fell to the share of the rebels within the first three days. A plot had been set on foot by some friends of the cause in Edinburgh to seize Edinburgh Castle a sergeant and two privates of the garrison were bribed or cajoled to admit jacobite soldiers within and a time was fixed for scaling the walls when one of these three would be the sentinel the cause of failure should be told in the words of a contemporary it being premised that for a conspiracy to succeed secrecy and punctuality are absolutely necessary they were so far from carrying on their affairs privately that a gentleman who was not concerned told me that he was in a house that evening where eighteen of them were drinking and heard the hostess say that they were powdering their hair for an attack on the castle the result of the powdering was that the attacking party arrived too late the sentinels were being changed and news of the attempt had meanwhile been conveyed to the garrison through the sister-in-law of one of the conspirators bolingbroke had given his opinion that scotland must not rise without england England would not rise without aid from France, and aid from France was not at present to be expected. 
there can however be no doubt that the earl of mar expected when he began the rebellion in scotland that risings would take place in england at the same time or follow very soon this opinion was shared by the english ministers who promptly arrested all noblemen prominent men and gentlemen and sent soldiers to all towns suspected of being on the jacobite side this was the occasion when the king to oxford sent a troop of horse in bristol and in plymouth arms were seized and horses which the jacobites had got ready active jacobites were arrested in november the duke of ormond unwisely driven into exile came across the channel with a following of less than forty expecting that james's friends would rally round him he landed in devonshire but finding no one to join him was obliged to return a little later the duke started again but this time he was driven back by a storm but though ormond's attempt at an insurrection in the west of england was thus defeated by the vigilance of the ministers there was one part of england not at that time as influential as oxford or devonshire though not far behind them in importance the north in which the jacobites had a much better chance their natural leader there was james ratcliffe earl of derwentwater a young roman catholic nobleman with large estates and great influence in the north he was at this time only twenty-four had been brought up in france and had family sympathy with the stuarts for his mother was an illegitimate daughter of charles the second mr forster member for northumberland and this young nobleman determined to raise their part of the country for james they headed a small force a handful of northumberland fox-hunters as sir walter scott calls it shortly afterwards they were joined by some scotch jacobites from over the border and after a little hesitation marched down into lancashire mr forster being elected general the bishop of carlisle and the lord lieutenant of westmoreland tried resistance called out the militia but the militia were frightened at the insurgents and ran away in a panic southwards the little jacobite army marched as far as preston gathering numbers if not strength as they went but being shut into the town of preston by the royal troops they were compelled ignominiously to surrender it is even said that mr forster the general when he heard of the approach of the royal troops had so little idea what to do that he went to bed on the same day as the surrender of preston it was sunday november seventeenth took place the battle of dunblane or sheriff muir the duke of argyle was the general whom the ministers in london had chosen to command the king's men in scotland it was a good choice head of one of the most powerful scotch clans the campbells and believed to be true to the cause of king george he was a good and experienced general as well as an able statesman the duke however had not at first large forces at his disposal and when the battle was fought the rebels were at least three to one the smaller force amounted to about three thousand three hundred of whom a third were cavalry but the smaller force was the better disciplined as well as the better commanded on the previous night the royalists occupied the town of dunblane the battle was fought on a moor to the east of the town where the sheriff used to exercise his militia both sides were anxious to engage each commander-in-chief took the right wing of his own army on argyle's right lay a morass 
which usually could not be crossed as however there had been a recent hard frost he ventured to send a squadron of horse over it and thus outflanked the enemy although the jacobites fought bravely they were beaten back meanwhile upon the other wing mar was meeting with a success like that of his opponent a fierce charge of the highlanders maddened by the sight of the fall of a much-beloved leader from the first fire of the royalists drove all before them target for defence and broadsword for slaughter soon did the work in a few minutes the royalists on the left wing were routed never perhaps was a stranger battle each right wing was triumphant each left defeated it was said of the duke of argyle that he was not letting his left hand know what his right hand was doing the truth was that his aide-de-camp was killed galloping across when the victorious right wings found that the success was theirs alone they faced about and returned to the battlefield mar had larger numbers and the better position but not having the courage to recognize this truth nor to act upon it he gave the order to retreat one of his followers exclaiming oh for one hour of dundee the following lines are from a ballad written upon the battle there's some say that we won some say that they won and some say that none won at all man there's but a thing i'm sure that it's sheriff moore a battle there was that i saw man and we ran and they ran and they ran and we ran and we ran and they ran away man it is usual to call this a drawn battle but the royalists gained more than the jacobites they had fewer slain fewer prisoners they took cannon and standards and on the day after the battle the duke was upon the field ready to engage again but the highlanders were not ready and soon melted away in this campaign as well as in the rebellion of the forty-five it must be remembered that highlanders were glorious soldiers to fight a battle with but until they come under the discipline of a regular army the worst soldiers in the world for a whole campaign their undoubted bravery and their personal strength as well perhaps as their quaint appearance and wild shouts made them formidable fighters but their jealousy of other clans even if they had not had bitter feuds with them was certain to produce disunion and too proud to yield for the common good the formidable highland army would vanish away in their onslaught they may be compared to a resistless snowstorm in their own mountains but if their enemies could wait the highland clans became like the same snow under the genial influence of the midday sun whilst mar was doing his ineffectual best to keep the highlanders together whilst many of those who remained were becoming anxious to treat and the king's ministers successful in stamping out rebellion in england were in a position to send strong reinforcements including some dutch regiments to the north the chevalier landed mar's rising of the standard was on september sixth the prince did not arrive until december twenty second it was not his fault that he was late he had hoped more from ormond's attempt in the west of england and when on its failure he wanted to sail to scotland english cruisers and contrary weather had prevented him but it certainly was a misfortune for his cause expecting to find a large highland force he found a small one the spirit was gone out of the attempt 
and he was not the man to bring it back again all the princes of the house of stuart from the time of james i may be described as obstinate in action and unwise in selection of advisers but many of them were genial witty lively and could inspire enthusiasm this prince however was grave even gloomy and his presence added nothing to the success of his cause bitterly disappointed he had not the good sense to hide his disappointment and on one occasion even shed tears his speeches were full of complaints that he had been deceived for him it was no new thing to be unfortunate since his whole life from his cradle had been a constant series of misfortunes as the royalists advanced the highlanders much to their disgust received orders to retreat and james was induced by his own friends after a sojourn in scotland of little more than six weeks to return to france when their prince was gone the insurgents dispersed five months had not passed since the beginning of the insurrection when the rebellion was over the rebels who were prisoners were certainly treated with clemency seven peers were tried were found or pleaded guilty of treason and condemned to death but of these only two were beheaded the earl of derwentwater being one the vast estates of the former were confiscated and bestowed on greenwich hospital a place for broken-down seamen and the revenues of the derwentwater estates are still used for pensions to sailors of the others three were pardoned and two escaped from the tower the story of the escape of one nobleman is romantic his wife came to visit him and he escaped in her clothes of the inferior offenders it may be noted that mr forster escaped from prison of the soldiers twenty-two were hanged in lancashire and four in london many of the others were transported to the colonies in america and it is said that when the war of independence broke out their descendants took the king's side so far were they at least from any feeling that after the fifteen the violence of the whigs dyed the royal ermine with blood probably unsuccessful rebels were never so leniently treated after the suppression of the insurrection the attention of the government was naturally turned to measures that would prevent the recurrence of a rising in the highlands the best of all the measures was exceedingly simple the providing good roads through the highlands the advantages of these excellent roads was that they enabled troops to be speedily conveyed from point to point upon the first news of a rising hitherto it had been almost impossible for any but trained mountaineers to travel much less to travel quickly but it will at once be evident that the roads would be used not only for troops other good results followed the promotion of trade and the spread of commercial intercourse the roads were chiefly made by soldiers under the command of marshal wade they gave rise to a famous couplet if you had seen these roads before they were made you would hold up your hands and bless general wade this however is not to be regarded as a bull for a road may be a road before it is a made road End of section five